0: TED Audio Collective. Hello and welcome to TED Health. It's Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter. Today I have the honor of speaking with Dr. Peter Hotez, the co-director of the Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital and Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine. This show is brought to you by Schwab. With Schwab investing themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like active lifestyle, healthy eating, wearable tech, and more. Choose from over 40 themes. Buy as is or customize the stocks in a theme to fit your goals. Learn more at schwab.com thematic investing.
1: Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work.
2: Add a little curiosity into your routine with TED Talks Daily, the podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday. In less than 15 minutes a day, you'll go beyond the headlines and learn about the big ideas shaping your future. Coming up, how AI will change the way we communicate, how to be a better leader, and more. Listen to TED
3: Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Dr. Hotez, thank you so much for joining me today.
3: Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to see you and talk to you.
0: So I want to talk about the COVID-19 vaccine that you helped to develop. It's patent-free, and you were nominated for a 2022 Nobel Peace Prize for this. And this is especially important for low- and middle-income countries in the COVID-19 response. Tell us about this vaccine.
3: We've been developing vaccines for the last 20 years at our Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development around this idea that there are vaccines that the pharma companies are probably not going to make. Our approach is a bit different. While we have research programs around innovation, we also are committed to working with vaccine producers in low- and middle-income countries. And most of them currently produce their own recombinant hepatitis B vaccine which is made through microbial fermentation and yeast. It's been around a few decades. It's a vegan vaccine, no animal cells, human cells. So we said, you know, if we're really going to make vaccines that could plug and play into the low and middle income country vaccine producers, that's a pretty good technology. So we started doing this for SARS and MERS. And then when the COVID-19 sequence came online in January, 2020, we moved very quickly. Our scientists got special permission to work because at that time a lot of things were shut down early 2020. And then we transferred the technology to vaccine producers in LMICs, low and middle income countries. No patents involved. You know, I think it's important not to demonize the pharma companies, but the ecosystem is too full tilt towards the multinationals. There's this buzz out there that only the multinationals have the chops to get this done. And we say, no, we've got to balance the ecosystems to include LMIC vaccine producers and partnerships like ours with Texas Children's. And I think we've provided proof of concept of that now.
0: Now, your vaccine was not included in Operation Warp Speed, despite the fact that you're based right here in the U.S. and Texas.
3: We weren't a pharma company. We
0: didn't have that lobbying
3: ability. So that was very frustrating that we were cut out of the big funding, and we could have moved a lot faster had we had that.
0: We've recently had approval for young children who are at least six months to get vaccinated against SARS-CoV-2. Why did this process take so long?
3: Well, it takes so long because we tend to be especially careful for the little kids because the vaccine ecosystem is fragile, and you don't... I mean, if, if you get it wrong on a pediatric COVID vaccine... It has other implications, not only for the whole COVID vaccination program, but for all childhood vaccinations. I like to say it doesn't take much to vote a good vaccine off the island, and especially in the background of all the anti-vaccine aggression out there. um, That's why you have to be uh, extra careful. Yeah, that's fascinating.
0: I want to talk a little bit about vaccine hesitancy. This is not the same thing as anti-vaccine. People should be allowed to ask questions without feeling alienated. And when asked, many parents have said they want to wait and see about vaccinating their children. If, you know, healthcare professionals shut down communication about this, do you think vaccine-hesitant parents then turn elsewhere for their information?
3: Well, we know that happens because the anti-vaccine groups dominate the Internet. Part of the problem was if parents fully understood The dangers of COVID-19 to little kids, they'd be more in, but we've not gotten that word out. The word that's gotten out is saying that COVID-19 is a benign illness in young children, and we've not gotten that word out enough.
0: So what do you tell parents who are worried about vaccinating their
3: children? I heavily emphasize the importance of the disease burden in young kids, and I think that's a major piece And the fact that the, the safety of the vaccines that have been tested and that one, two punch, you know, is often significant. Having said that, I am a little bit worried about the level of uptake. There's a a big regionalization now in COVID vaccine uptake and making this case in the southern United States among conservative states is much tougher than it is in the Northeast. That's a problem because we've learned during this pandemic that the narrative that COVID-19 exclusively affects older Americans is simply not true. And I think that's part of the problem. We've not gotten that word out enough. Also, the anti-vaccine people weaponize that and they keep on saying this is exclusively among older Americans.
1: Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work.
0: I've really gotten into running this year, so I have to tell you about the Ghost 16 from Brooks, because this shoe is kind of a game changer. I found the cushioning to be next-level comfortable. It's incredibly soft, yet surprisingly lightweight. It's literally comfortable every time my foot hits the pavement. The Ghost 16 from Brooks isn't just a shoe for me. It's a daily boost for my runs. Visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. You're a pediatrician, an infectious disease specialist, and a researcher. What's it like to be a public voice for science during this time, especially with science under attack?
3: You know, I I was in touch with my college roommate the other day, and he said to me, Pete, we always knew you were going to be... An MD-PhD scientist, you were focused on that since the beginning, but we never saw the public engagement piece coming. And that was something I didn't set out to do, but we don't have scientists out there in the public domain. We're largely invisible. And unfortunately, that's by design. You know, when I got my uh, MD and PhD in the eighties, the message was, Hey, you're not supposed to engage the public directly or even talk to journalists. That was seen as a form of self-promotion or grandstanding. And also many university and academic health center office of communications. They don't like their docs and their scientists speaking out because they want to control the message. And, you know, all they see in it is risk to the institution that you'll screw up the message. And of course, if you do it enough, you will screw up. That's just bound to happen. And all of those ideas were put in place before something called the Internet came along. And now there's this terrible vacuum. And scientists don't feel comfortable speaking out because that culture of you're not supposed to engage the public still exists. The young people are all in. and Their commitment to public service is an all-time high, but they're scared, and rightly so. But over time, you know, there were some serious vacuums and scientists weren't speaking out and talking. And and I felt as a subject matter expert, I had the voice and, and I found it meaningful to do it. And it started around speaking out about neglected tropical diseases. And I was always getting pushback, though. I actually wrote an article in 2017, pre-pandemic, called How the Anti-Vaxxers Are Winning, which basically said a lot of what happened is both predicted and predictable because the message that came out of Health and Human Services for years or decades – was that we're just going to pretend it doesn't exist and it's going to go away. And after I wrote that article in 2017, I got a call from some leaders of HHS and they said, Peter, you know, we're not talking about this now. You're going to give it oxygen. I said, it's got all the oxygen it needs. This thing is about to blow up. And sure enough, it really did during COVID-19. So here I was in Texas, and there was all this rising anti-vaccine activism, claiming that vaccines caused autism. And I said, "Hey, look! And I'm, I'm a vaccine scientist. I'm here in Texas, which is ground zero for it. I have a daughter with autism and intellectual disabilities. If I don't say something, who does?" And that's been a major activity of mine, in addition to being a scientist, is speaking out against this very dangerous anti-vaccine movement that's now claiming so many American lives. So, I find going on the cable news channels or podcasts like this, very important, because I think one of the reasons why the anti-vaccine, anti-science groups are so powerful right now is there's a vacuum. The whole culture of science and health communication needs to change. So I think the answer is let's actually build into medical schools, programs of science communication, because there is method to it. I mean, I had to learn about trial and error. I have to say more error than, than trial. But there is a way to do this. And I think society as a whole will be a lot better.
0: Well, it's so important, everything that you've done. So I thank you for that service. Thank you. Now, from your perspective, is it possible to separate the science of public health from politics? And how do you do that?
3: It's, it's you know, I think Virchow, the great German pathologist, basically said medicine, science is politics or our politics. Um, it's gotten increasingly tough to do that. And I think this has been one of the hardest things that I've ever had to deal with. You know, right now, I'm writing a new book with the working title Anti-Science Kills that talks about the fact that over the last half of 2021, after vaccines became widely available – Americans needlessly lost their lives because they were defiant of getting vaccinated. And they were overwhelmingly in conservative states and red states. In fact, the New York Times calls it red COVID. And the numbers coming out of Charles Gabba, the health analyst, and the New York Times, and Axios, and the Kaiser Family Foundation, the few Research found they've all come to the same conclusion, that it's coming out of the far right. The redder the county using Trump voters in the 2020 election, the greater the loss of life. And for me, it's the hardest thing I've ever had to talk about because all of our training as physicians, we're supposed to be above politics. But what do you do when the anti-science, anti-vaccine aggression is coming out of the CPAC conference. First, they're going to vaccinate you, then they're going to take away your guns and Bibles. And then amplified on Fox News every night, right? You've got Tucker Carlson railing against vaccines, and not just targeting the science, but the scientists. And the problem is there are very few of us are willing to talk about it. We don't get the backing from our professional societies and scientific societies because they have to be politically neutral. What do you do... When, to paraphrase Desmond Tutu or L.E.Y. neutrality favors the aggressor. And I don't have the answers. Uh, all I know is you can't talk about it unless you talk about it, not because you're trying to score political points, but you're trying to save lives.
0: Now, Peter, if you could turn back time and be in charge of all messaging about the COVID pandemic, what would you have done differently?
3: You know, the anti-vaccine movement has shifted over time. It started out... Around claims that vaccines cause autism because of my daughter, I was debunking that. But then I saw that shift around this health freedom, medical freedom movement that started around eight or nine years ago. And that's when it became a political movement, when you started to see political action committees form, anti-vaccine PACs in Texas, like Texans for Vaccine Choice. I said, "Uh uh-oh, we're in trouble. This is going to this is a political movement. And so what I've said is. This, you know, the health sector doesn't know what to do about this anymore. You know, we've got some very good vaccine advocacy groups in this country, but even they don't know what to do with this one. I was on Zoom call after Zoom call with pro-vaccine groups, and it was all about getting the pro-vaccine message out there. And I said, this is great, but this is going to get you about 30% of the way there. Because unless you do something about the anti-vaccine, anti-science aggression, as good as the message is, you're going to get drowned out. It's going to be a message in a bottle in the Atlantic Ocean because it's basically a political far-right empire now. I mean, you've got the Proud Boys marching at anti-vaccine rallies. The first arrests in the January 6 uprising included prominent anti-vaccine activists – that's where this is right now, but we're afraid to frame it as such. I mean, U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy was a wonderful Surgeon General. I think I think the world of him. He won't touch this, right? He talks about the advisories of the social media companies, Facebook, whatever they're called now, Meta. Yes, it's certainly helpful. It makes a contribution, but it's a small piece of what it's going to take to really fix this. And what I've said to the Biden administration. This is, goes beyond HHS. Let's bring in some experts outside the health sector to help advise us on what we should be doing. Talk to people who deal with things like global terrorism or nuclear proliferation or cyber attacks because you've got to create a task force that brings in experts from Homeland Security and even State Department because this anti-vaccine activism, turns out it's killing more Americans and all of those other things combined. And yet we don't frame it as that.
0: Yeah, cross-disciplinary approach of experts makes perfect sense to me. So I want to end hopefully on a positive note. What are you most hopeful about in the coming years?
3: Showing that science has an important role. And I think we've shown this yet again, but it's been a hard case to make. So I do think that we need to do better as scientists in reaching out to the public and explaining what we do and helping people to understand what we do. And and I think that will go a long way. And that's why I appreciate what TED is doing. This is so valuable to give a face and a voice to science and scientists because we're otherwise invisible. And, and, and when you're invisible, people start to distrust what they can't see and understand.
0: Dr. Peter Hotez, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you for all that you do. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening today. This episode was produced by Joanne DeLuna and fact-checked by Ted. And special thanks to Anna Phelan, Maria Lagius, Michelle Quint, and Colin Helms. I'm Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter. Stay well, and I'll talk to you next week.